Our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from Nehemiah, chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. As I read this particular section, I will likely mispronounce things. Don't let that throw you. Try to listen beyond the pronunciations and uh, actually listen to what's happening in Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. And before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you have made, and we thank you for your word that you have given to us. And God, we ask that you would help us to hear your word today. God, I pray that you would help us to hear your word today and every day. God, that, uh, that your word would be central in our lives. God, that, um, that among all of the, the words and the voices that bombard us on a daily basis, that your word would stand out clear among them all, that your word would stand far above them all. For we know, Lord, that your word is the word that will endure, that your word is the one that is true, that your word is uh, the one that can be trusted. And so, Lord, this morning, again, we ask that you would help us to hear your word today, that we might come to know you better, that we come to love and trust you more in all the events of these days. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maasiah. And on his left were Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Mishalem. Right? Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, uh, Hodiah, Maasiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law, making it clear, and giving the meaning so the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
Turning then to Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 21, our New Testament lesson for today. Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 21, says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This morning, we have an odd passage before us. This is a passage from the book of Acts that we're going to be looking at. It is from Acts chapter 27, and here's why this one is a little odd. It's uh, at first glance, just reads like a travelogue. And you read this and you go, I don't know what this has to do with me. I don't know why we're reading this. And I'm just going to prepare you in advance that that is going to be how you're going to hear this. (laughs) But we're going to do our usual method as we go through this, which is we're going to read it, we're going to talk about what it means, and then we're going to talk about what it means for us. So if you'll hang in there to the end, I think you'll see uh, where we're going here. Uh, Before I get into it, I'll tell you, it also reads very similarly uh, to um, things like the, you remember the Iliad and the Odyssey? You remember these? Like with Ulysses, Odysseus, whoever, uh, the Greek hero of old that Homer writes about in his journey back from the Trojan War and how he's going kind of island to island all the way and having these different adventures along the way and it just takes him forever to get back home. It kind of reads like that. That's the section of Acts we're into now, anyway, and uh, where Paul is going from uh, from place to place by ship in the Mediterranean Sea as he's trying to get from Caesarea in Israel all the way to Rome, and he's going to have these adventures along the way. It's similar also to, uh, if you're familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Anybody know that one? Yes? No? It seems like the, the younger... (laughs) <laughs> the younger heads in the room seem to be nodding, and otherwise I'm just getting blank stares. Similar to that, as they go island to island by boat, different adventures along the way. That's what we're going to see here as well, except that what we're reading in Acts does not read like either of those. Because while it is similar in that it, we've got somebody on boat having different adventures, it's not written as a story to entertain It is not even written as a story to teach moral lessons. It is not uh, written for anything other than to communicate what God has been doing from the beginning through Acts and just carry the story forward. In fact, it's written more as an eyewitness account by Luke, who was along for the ride. And so as you hear this, 
Listen for the details of things that he will include that you would never include unless you were there, and that's just the kind of thing that sticks out to you when you're there. That's uh, one of the things to be listening for as we go through this. This is Luke chapter 27, verses 1 through 12. Oh, one other thing that I have to point out before we get into this, and that is uh, <laughs> why and how Paul is traveling. He has been trying to get to Rome for some time. If you remember the very beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus says to uh, the disciples that you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so that's been the progression that we've been seeing since Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 is the Spirit has been leading the people to go and spread this news in Jerusalem and then in all Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And we saw when once Paul gets called, that he's going to be one who is going to be this apostle to the Gentiles, that he's going to be the one who is going to be taking this message to the ends of the earth. And we've seen him on multiple missionary journeys already going around the Gentiles. And you say, yeah, that probably counts as the ends of the earth. And Paul says, not yet. <laughs> I got to make it to Rome. And in fact, uh, we see at one point Jesus actually appearing to him in a vision and saying, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you will also testify in Rome. And so he knows he's getting there. But where he's been for the last two years is stuck in Israel, in Caesarea, right there on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, but not going anywhere. And uh, mostly because of political incompetence, but we'll leave that aside. <laughs> he's stuck there in a uh, kind of Roman holding uh, time where he can't go anywhere. He's being held as a prisoner, but he's not being um, set free and he's not being convicted either. Just hanging out. But now he's, he's going on. He's going on to Rome, but he's going as a prisoner. He's going under guard. He hasn't been convicted yet. He's still got the trial to face him, so we'll see. He's got more freedoms than he'd have if he'd actually been convicted already, but he is going as a prisoner without uh, freedom entirely. So here we go. He's finally getting to leave, heading to Rome, and here's how this begins. Acts chapter 27. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramidium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. From there, we put out to sea again and passed to the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Cnidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee of Crete, opposite Salmone. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lassia. Much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. 
This is a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. There you go. I told you. You're going to hear this, and you're going to say, I have no idea what this has to do with me. Why are we reading this? We'll get there. But first, we have to understand some of what he's talking about uh, and what's going on there before we talk about what this has to do with us. Um, One of the things that you need to know before I get into this at all is I do not understand pretty much anything nautical. So I'm going to get all my terminology wrong, and if that bothers you, I'm sorry. That's just the best I can do. So you'll have to do some translating in your head to get the terminology right, probably, as we go through this. I I was raised in Oklahoma. It's landlocked. We don't, you know, what do you do? Um, Anyway, that being said, I did learn something this week uh, reading this, uh, doing some study on it, because I have read this passage before, and I just made some assumptions that I knew what it was talking about, and I did not. Uh, so for those of you who know what this part is talking about, feel free to laugh at me. For the rest of you, you're going to learn something. Here's what it is. That, that phrase, passed to the lee of the island, you've heard that before? Do you guys know what that means? I, I had just assumed, I, I had assumed all my life that this was one of those things like, you know, boats, ships, you've got the port and starboard, you've got these different words for right and left because, hey, we're on a boat, so we're going to do that. So you have these different words. I thought, okay, probably the same thing, but with islands. You just have a, while you're sailing around, you've got a different word for right and left. And so Lee kind of sounds like left. That's probably what it means. They went to the left of the island. (laughs) That is not what it means. Although if you actually look at a map and what they were doing, they did go to the left of the island. So it always made sense to me. I look at the maps. If you have maps in the back of your Bible, use them. I'm serious. Use them when you come to any of these kinds of things and it's talking about these place names. There may even be a map where it draws a line on there. It's really helpful. Anyway, but I'd assumed that this meant they went to the left of the island, which they did. That's not what it means. (laughs) And what it actually means helps us understand what the situation was that they were facing and what was going on there. It actually is a phrase that has to do with uh, letting the island break the wind for you. And so it's going on the side that doesn't have the wind. So when the wind is blowing from the north, and that is not helpful for what you're trying to do, then if you've got an option, if you're going to sail around the north side of the island or the south side of the island, you take the south side. You go around on the southern side, and that way the wind's coming from the north. You let all the geographical features of the island block the wind for you, and that way you can keep on going just fine. Isn't that neat? I had no idea. That's what's going on. Now you learned something. And those of you who already knew that, again, feel free to laugh at me. Uh, (laughs) So that is is important in that uh, what is going on here is they do have winds that are against them in trying to get to Rome. Now, there are a couple problems with trying to get to Rome uh, on schedule. And it has nothing to do with Paul and his desire to get to Rome. Uh, It actually has to do with other things. Financial uh, incentives are at play here. You notice they got on to an Alexandrian ship, right? This is not just a boat that was made in the Alexandrian style or something like that. This is a ship coming from uh, Alexandria in Egypt, and this would have been a grain ship. And so Rome was importing a bunch of grain from, uh, from Egypt at the time. Probably too much, but they were doing that. And so the um, people in Egypt were sailing to Rome, and you could make 
apparently one trip per year. So you would load yourself down and you would get yourself to Rome and that would be your big payoff for the year. However, however, if you started early in the year and everything, conditions were favorable, it was possible you could actually make it twice in one year. And so if you went early and everything went well and you could load up again and go again, you could make it a second time, in which case you would actually double your annual income for that year. So that's a pretty big incentive to try to make that happen. And so that is apparently what this ship was doing. That's why they're uh, traveling as late as they are in the year that direction. But going that way, we get the centurion saying, all right, we're coming aboard and we're headed to Rome. I'm bringing them prisoners as well. So they're heading this direction, and uh, the problem is they start getting the winds that are against them. So I don't know if you noticed that that is mentioned multiple times. Um, Verse 4, we put out to sea again and passed to the lee of Cyprus. Now you know what that means. Because the winds were against us. And then later we have verse 6. Uh, no, seven, we made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Canidus. Uh, when the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete. Again, you know what that means. And uh, then verse eight, we moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place. So continually, they are being slowed down because of the winds. They're having to change direction because of the winds. And I hope that as you're hearing that, it kind of reminds you of something we've already seen in the book of Acts. Do you remember when Paul was thinking, hey, I'm, I'm gonna wanna, I want to go to uh, this place, but the Spirit wouldn't let him? I want to go to this place, the Spirit wouldn't let him. I want to go to this place, the Spirit wouldn't let him. You know what's really interesting? Is it in Greek? Wind, Spirit, breath, all the same word. Same is true in Hebrew, by the way. And so here, they, are, they have their plans. They know what they want to do, and yet now we have the winds that are not letting them go the way they want to go. <laughs> Sounds a little familiar. But they're going to end up, we know they're going to end up in Rome. Uh, Jesus has already told Paul that he's going to get to Rome. But in the meantime, it's not going to be easy getting there. And in the meantime, we have a decision to make. Because at this point, it, has, it says it was already after the Day of Atonement. In other words, we are... Uh, late September at the earliest. And so now things are starting to stir up and conditions are not looking good, uh, not looking favorable going forward if we're to try to do this. So what do you do? And that's the decision that they have to make is what are we going to do? They've already made it to this, uh, this spot, Fair Havens. Uh, sounds lovely. But they don't want to stop there. Not for the winter. They realize at this point, we're not going to make it to Rome this year. We're going to have to winter somewhere. And we're going to have to winter there and wait until things get good again in the spring. Then we can go on to Rome. So uh, they could have made it earlier, but it's gotten too late. Now we can't. So now the decision has to be made. What are we going to do? And this is the part where it ties in with us the way that they make this decision I think gives us the anatomy of a bad decision. And this is where I think we're all going to be able to relate to this. That um, 
we look at what, they, what decision they made and why they made it and what other option they had. Verse 10 through 12. But Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo into our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. It was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. What is going on there? Paul is giving them advice and saying, guys, we're done. We're done. This is where we need to be wintering. And then it says, but instead, and if, we, if we're going to go further, it's going to be bad. It's going to be really bad. But instead of listening to him, listen to the pilot, listen to the owner of the ship, why would we listen to Paul? He's not even a sailor. <laughs> and so they listen to those guys, and then, of course, it's not just those guys they listen to. But we also have the majority vote that comes in. The majority decided we should sail on, right? And so here we have Paul giving his warning, and nobody's listening to him. Now, why did they decide to sail on? Even though it was going to be bad news ahead, which it is, and we'll get to that probably next week, and we get this big, I told you so moment for Paul. But before that, it gets bad. Why would they not listen to him? Why would they decide to go on ahead anyway? And there are two main reasons. The second one being primary. The first one is, they don't know the future. None of us knows for sure what's going to happen in the future. This is why with weather forecasts, even today, with all the fancy equipment you have, you still get percent chances, Right? And every time you hear a percent chance, it's the way of saying, I mean, we don't know for sure. But we still, you have to plan for the future. And you plan based on those percentages, right? We like to think we do. And so if it says it's 10% chance of rain tomorrow, you don't cancel the picnic because you go, well, I don't know. They don't know if it's going to rain or not. You say, no, it's 90% chance not going to rain. We're having the picnic. That's how we do. That's how we operate. Jesus even said, you guys know how to read the signs in the sky. If it's red at night, you know it means one thing. If it's red in the morning, it means another thing. You know how to determine these things, right? And that, I'm sure, is what these, the pilot thinks he's doing, the uh, centurion thinks he's doing, the ownership thinks he's doing, the majority who's voting, they all think they're doing this. They're looking at the same thing Paul's looking at, but they think it's okay to go, and he doesn't. And here's what I think is going on. I could be wrong. Here's what I think is going on. I don't think this is one of those cases where Paul is getting special revelation from God that this is how it's going to go. That will happen later in this trip. I don't think that's what's going on in this case. I think what's going on right here is Paul is just reading the information the same way they are. But he's giving an actual outsider's perspective. He's giving an unbiased opinion looking at the facts on the ground. And everybody else is thinking that's what they're doing. But they're not. Here's the clue. Verse 11. Centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the ownership. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided we would sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. Do you hear it? 
They're not basing this decision on facts, are they? They're basing this on, we don't want to winter here. This isn't a good place to be for the whole winter. That place down the road, that, that'd be a good place to winter. I hope we can make it. It has nothing to do with the weather conditions. It has everything to do with where they do and don't want to be. In other words, they act like this decision is one that is based on facts, but they have hidden motivations in their own heart that's blinding them to the facts. Does that make sense? This is where it ties in with all of us. But what Paul is giving is an outside perspective, and they can't see it. They are blind to it because of their own hidden motivations in their own hearts. They want to be there. They don't want to be here. And so they're going to go out and they're going to chance it. They're going to take a look and say, you know, there's a 10% chance we could make it. The 10% is not bad. We, we should go for it <laughs> because that's what they want to do. And so they are adjusting the facts to suit uh, what they are wanting. And that is where we all uh, run into problems. This would be like you have uh, somebody who goes to the doctor. And they take their temperature and they say, you have 104. And instead of saying, oh, my goodness, I'm sick, saying instead, well, how do you know that 104 isn't my normal? Because I've never really taken my temperature before. Maybe for everybody else, it's 98.6 is normal. But for me, maybe 104 is normal, so I could still go to the school dance tonight. (laughs) And you go, wait a second. (laughs) This has nothing to do with what your normal is or isn't. It has everything to do with the motivations (laughs) behind it. And this is where we all have blind spots. We all have problems. And so what we need is an outside perspective on the decisions that we're making. Where do we get an outside perspective? Especially when we are all living within the same time. We're all living within the same culture. We all have these motivations in our own hearts. Where do we get a perspective that is outside of ourselves, that is outside of our time, that is outside of our culture, and that yet still speaks to our time and our culture and ourselves with clarity and cutting through those hidden motivations. Any guesses? <laughs> Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 12 says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates, even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. I hope you've had this experience in reading scripture where it it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of your heart, where you get beyond the wishful thinking and making decisions on, I hope it turns out well, but where it really penetrates, where you can see the decisions that you're making and the reasons why you're making those decisions. Years ago, I remember having the experience of, I had noticed myself in reading the Bible was very different than reading any other book because of what it would do physically to me as I sat in the chair. This was weird. But reading any other book, I would be sitting there, I'd be reading, and minutes would go by, and I would still be in the same position. Reading the Bible, I would be sitting there in the chair, reading the Bible, and I would notice a few minutes later that I had slumped down in my chair (laughs) because it was reading me too, and I didn't like the things that it was showing me. Other books didn't do that. This does that. 
It speaks, it's living and active. And it speaks from outside our time and from outside our culture. And it speaks to to them and it speaks outside ourselves and it shows us our blind spots. And it uh, divides soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts. Um, this is tough. This is uh, one of those things. That it, what we want to do is we want an outside perspective to give us the real facts, to give us what reality is actually like, so that we're not operating on wishful thinking and hopefulness. And here's what's strange, is that Christians are accused by those outside the faith, especially by those who are atheistic, humanist, naturalists. They say, that's what you guys are doing. You're living all on wishful thinking. You're hoping this thing is true, but we're the ones who are dealing in reality. We're the ones who are dealing with the facts. Have you heard this before? I would say it's exactly backwards. They have it exactly backwards backwards. And I'll give you a couple examples of this. Um, this, not for all, but for most people who are in that camp, they are doing exactly what the uh, owner of the boat is doing, what the pilot of the boat is doing, what the majority of the boat is doing, where they want something to be true, and therefore they follow after that course. Tim Keller points out, Aldous Huxley, the guy who wrote Brave New World, when he was in college, uh, he specifically rejected Christianity. And the reason he did so is not because he didn't think it was true, but he actually owned up to this and said it's because he didn't want it to be true, because he wanted to be able to sleep with whoever he wanted to sleep with and not feel bad about it. You see, do you hear this? It's an ulterior motive, and that is then what drives the... Uh, trying to find evidence to the contrary or whatever. He tells another story, uh, Keller does, where so there's a pastor who used to do this. He's like, I don't know that I would recommend this necessarily. It's pretty harsh. <laughs> have to have your relationship uh, pretty good with this person if you do this. But he said this pastor would have college students. They'd come home from college after growing up in the church, and they would come, and he'd go have lunch with them, and they would start talking about... Um, you know, I'm starting to doubt the faith because I had this professor who said these things or I had this conversation with a friend who said these things and, you know, it's raised all these doubts. I'm not sure that Scripture can be trusted because... And he'd listen patiently and kind of nod along and then just say, so tell me, who have you been sleeping with? And they would go, (gasps) how did you know? (laughs) How did you know? And it's because... It's these hidden motivations in our heart that we want to try to justify um, a different morality because we feel the pricks of our moral conscience and we have to either own up to it or not. And so in trying to not, people will construct a whole other view and call that reality. This is where, again, we need the incisive word of God to cut through our time, to cut through our culture, to cut through what we consider as normal because everybody else is doing it, to cut through our own hidden motivations and attitudes of our hearts and speak that outside word that speaks to it and tells us what is true and what is real. Um, in 
in his book, The Reason for God. Keller ends one of his chapters this way. He says, you may say, I see that Christianity might be just the thing for people who have had collapses in their lives. But what if I don't fail in my career? What if I have a great family? As Augustine said, if there is a God who created you, then the deepest chambers of your soul simply cannot be filled up by anything less. That is how great the human soul is. If Jesus is the creator Lord, then by definition, nothing could satisfy you like he can. Even if you are successful, even the most successful careers and families cannot give the significance, security, and affirmation that the author of glory and love can. Everybody has to live for something. Whatever that something is becomes Lord of your life, whether you think of it that way or not. Jesus is the only Lord who, if you receive him, will fulfill you completely. And if you fail him, will forgive you eternally. I mentioned the um, verse in Hebrews 4 and how it judges the scripture judges the thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts. Here's one of the ways it does this. It can be really easy to look back at people who fail and say, I wouldn't have done that, right? I can't believe they did that. We look back at the Garden of Eden and say, Eve, what are you doing? If I'd been there, snake starts talking to me. I wouldn't listen to the snake. No, I'd trust God. That's what I'd do. Yes, I would. (laughs) Except that every single one of us has listened to the snake and not trusted God at some point. Or we can look at you go down through the stories, all of them. You say, I would never have done that. I would never have abandoned Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he gets arrested. No, not me. I'd be there to the end. That's the same thing Peter said to Jesus before it happened. No, I'm willing to go to prison. I'm willing to die with you. And Jesus says, tonight you're going to deny me three times. Peter is operating on wishful thinking on hoping that's the person he is. Jesus cuts through that and says, I know who you are, Peter. This is who you are. And Peter doesn't want to hear it. And then later that night, as the rooster crows and Jesus looks at Peter, Luke chapter 22 records this. Jesus looks at Peter and Peter goes outside and weeps bitterly because he knows that Jesus was right, that his perspective on him is truer than his own perspective on himself. That's what we need. We need that outside perspective. But here's the good thing. Is this outside perspective is not intended as criticism to condemn us, but as constructive criticism to redeem us. This is not the end of Peter's story. And it's not the end of our story either. But we have to know who we are in a way that only he can reveal. That's not the end of it. So we go back to Hebrews 4. Read the next few verses. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is where we start shrinking down in our chairs. But then it continues and says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses 
But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is what we have. A throne, not of judgment, but a throne of grace that says, I know who you are. I know exactly who you are. I know you better than you know yourself. And I love you. Many of us are in the situation that this uh, ship's pilot were in, that the owner was in, that the majority were in. Or we have been warned from the outside, you are headed for disaster if you continue on this course. And we keep trying to lie to ourselves and say, but maybe not. The question for this morning is, will we listen to the word of God? Will we trust the word of God as the one who knows us best, that speaks from outside of our time and our culture and ourselves, giving us the perspective that we need of reality and trusting the love and the grace that it communicates that doesn't just cut through for the sake of cutting, but for healing. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.